You're listening to special programming from Nevada Voice and 91.5 Jazz and More, KUNV-FM and HD1 Las Vegas. This is Impact, the daily look at how we are coping with the coronavirus in Nevada. I'm Carrie Kaufman. Many people in the world are taking this time of quarantine as a time of reflection. Our lives are suddenly so different, it's scary, but it's also a paradigm shift. Is it really that important to have office buildings for people who are having no trouble working at home? Can we even out the work-life balance? Take more walks, have more deep conversations, take care of our health, perhaps eat less, or at least better. Every spring, the second largest religion in the world does exactly that, spending the month of Ramadan in fasting and prayer and reflection and self-improvement. What can non-Muslim people learn from this practice? And how exactly do you stay home and work and not eat? But first... The numbers today from the Washington Post. The U.S. has passed a milestone today. A million people have been diagnosed with the coronavirus in this country. And researchers are saying that that's likely only a fraction of the population that has contracted the disease. 58,000 people have died in the U.S. in the last day. Uh, It's 2,000 more than it was yesterday. Uh, So 58,000 people total. We have about 300,000 more cases reported worldwide today. Worldwide, we're up to 3.1 million cases and uh, 216,500 deaths. In Nevada, our numbers really are relatively flat. We're at 4,805 cases, 4,800 cases, 115 more than yesterday, That includes Roy Horn of Siegfried and Roy fame, who is in the hospital. Thirteen more people have died today, bringing our numbers to 219. For context, New York numbers are at 295 cases and uh, 23,000 deaths. We are joined today by Rebecca Colbert, one of the administrators of CCSD Parents. Rebecca also works for the library. What is your title at the library again? I'm a head of collections and bibliographic services, but really just say I buy the materials you check out. Oh, that's really cool. That's like <laughs> the best job in the world. Uh, it really is. <laughs> so CCSD has joined more than 60 school districts throughout the country to ask Congress for $175 billion in coronavirus funding, plus a $13 million raise in regular Title I funding, plus more money for special education needs. Superintendent Jesus Jara said that the school districts across the country will lose 20% of revenues, that he thinks Clark County schools will see about a 14% cut based on what Governor Sisolak has previously said. But we won't know for about a week or two. Uh, The requested federal funding facilitated by the Council for Great City Schools, which Jar talks about a lot, is requesting the money to go directly to school districts, not to states, using the Title I funding formula. So let's go through these numbers for a second, Rebecca. CCSD is a $3.5 billion enterprise. 14% of that is uh, $490 million. 
Rebecca. That's how much we would lose. We were freaking out about losing 17 million last year. How do we deal with 490 million? It it's staggering, and especially if you consider that of that 3.5 billion, like between 80 and 85 percent are salaries. So the money that's left over for things like curriculum and um, enhancements and and things that go to classrooms or to build buildings, uh, we're so far behind on all of that. And 490 million is it's just devastating. Unless everybody that's homeschooling right now stays in homeschools, we will not be able to function um, right. in August without money. So I had not heard this bit about the great city schools requesting the money go directly to school districts. Mm-hmm. I'm personally deeply in favor of that because we know what happens when we vote to give money to the schools. The state says, oh, hey, guess what? Bait and switch. We're going to take that money. Um, so if the districts themselves could secure federal funds directly – I think that might go a long way towards easing the cuts. Yeah, that might be. But $490 million is a lot of money. We'll see how that works out. But this is this is kind of a, a an amazing thing. Um, I want to play a clip. I can hear somebody, like, scratching something. I don't know if it's you, Rebecca, or if it's a tar. Um, but I want to play a clip from today's press conference. This is about... This is after a question from Miranda Wilson from the Las Vegas Sun. She asked Jara about summer school. And uh, do you have any a sense of what the cost of that might be at this point? Uh, Miranda, right now we're we're finalizing the you know the end the final touches to that. Um, we're, we're looking at obviously it's something that we have to invest. In. Obviously, our students with special needs. That we need to support not you know um so we'll have to find ways to invest but we don't have the numbers right now it will be finalized by the end of the week rebecca what did he say <laughs> he has no idea about summer school that's what he said <laughs> and, and i know he has no idea because i'm on that summer school badgering list asking everybody high school counselors middle school counselors uh nevada learning academy online no one knows what the summer school plan is uh, so uh, we don't even have a plan it's not even that we don't have like yeah, go three ahead. different things is are the facilities going to be open? Or are we going to close for the year? Are we going to fund summer school in person or is it going to be online? And if it is online, who's going to deliver the instruction? Mm-hmm. And nobody has an answer to any of those yet. So we don't even have a plan. It's not that we don't know how much to that the plan is going to cost us. We don't even have a plan yet. And it's already almost May 1st. We know we need a plan. <laughs> we know that usually summer school is enrolled by now. Right. Uh, right. We did it last year. And we did. really, I think they're waiting to see if it has to do with seniors making up credits or does it have to do with kids making up um, credits, not that they've graduated, but ones that didn't have a chance in fourth quarter. I worry because we're one of those summer school families that wants to get ahead. We're mm. not making up for anything. Mm-hmm. And I tend to think the responsible decision would be to offer summer school to people who need to make up credits and not to folks like myself. Ah, interesting. Yeah, that's what one of my daughters did last year. She took summer, she took history during Mm -hmm. summer school so that she could have uh, an extracurricular um, uh, class that she could take uh, that wasn't, that wasn't devoted to history. Uh, So um, who is making these decisions though? If not for JARA, if not CCSD, who's making these decisions? Well, it doesn't seem to be JARA, and it doesn't seem to be the board. I'm hoping maybe the superintendent level, somewhere in between middle management. Um, but honestly, I, I don't know. They've had movement in that 
management strata within the past week or two as well. Mm. Uh, so uh, I wish I knew. I, I think we'll know before May 21st when school officially ends. Yeah, hopefully that would be a really nice thing. A couple of headlines uh, seem to collide for me today, Rebecca. One was that the Federal Reserve, which is America's bank, it's not part of the government, uh, is planning to loan large companies uh, $500 billion, no strings attached. There's no provision for paying workers at all and none for limiting executive salaries. At the same time, Trump told reporters that there would be strings for the federal government, which is, which is not the Federal Reserve, to give money to cities and states. Trump suggested, actually, uh, that he wouldn't give money to cities that have sanctuary laws. So um, seriously, Rebecca, that's like a doctor saying, well, you know, you have cancer, but unless you, um, you know, you're gay, and unless, unless you stop being gay, I can't take care of you because you have cancer, and I don't, I don't approve of your lifestyle. I was trying to think of a time when there's been such an adversarial relationship between the feds and the states, mm-hmm. and I haven't been alive long enough to to touch on one of these. Maybe in older American history there has been, but the job of the federal government is to provide support to the states. Right. And and that's not only absent, but it's interrupted. Um, last week, there was a story about how he'd intercepted or how the federal government had intercepted emergency supplies that states had ordered. Right. And we talked about how, you know, states were trying to sneak in these midnight deliveries. Yes. And not only is he pitting the states against each other, he's pitting them against the federal government. And the federal government is always going to have the money and the power. Mm-hmm. We're... It, it is hard not to feel at the mercy of of crazy Washington right now. Yeah, that is, that is very much true. Uh, but we do have this Western States Pact that Nevada has joined. We talked about that a little bit on the the show last night. Uh, so and and California actually seems to be moving forward. They seem to have flattened the curve enough so that Governor Newsom is thinking about letting some businesses reopen. Uh, and possibly even schools, they might start their year uh, in July. Um, Newsom actually released a four-stage plan today for reopening the state, and we're still waiting for our plan from the governor as well as from CCSD. Uh, So I'm really glad that we're part of this pact. Maybe we can learn something from our neighbor to the West. I wondered what took Sisolak so long. I was delighted to see him sign on. And I know most of the national attention has been with Cuomo, but Newsom has done a really brilliant job, I think, Mm -hmm. with a gigantic economy in California and trying to balance that with the health and safety of the people who live there. Mm -hmm. It's not bad to partner. (laughs) It's not bad to partner. And also Jay Inslee has done a really great job. uh, because he he had it first. He had it first. He had it first. Uh, New Zealand is also opening up. I love this story. They are an island nation. So, you know, they, they could uh, lock down a little harder than we can. Uh, they closed their airports. There are no flights in and out of the country. Uh, no takeout food, which I thought was really interesting. So their easing up seems to be what we actually have now, like, you know, they're, they're allowing deliveries, they're allowing people to pick up food. Uh, They're still not letting people um, take flights into the country. The airports are closed, but I would like to elect Jacinda Ardern to be president of the world. Can we do that? 
Uh, it's not too late, I hear. <laughs> <laughs> She's 39. She's only 39. She's probably the most effective leader out there. So I, I'm just putting that out right now. Did she not start in New Zealand right before they had their, their mosque shooting? And she inherited crisis after crisis. And she's doing a wonderful she's job. She's doing a wonderful job. She was there for a couple of years before that. Because I remember when she came to the UN General Assembly and she was um, breastfeeding her baby on the floor of the UN. Right. Which yeah. was radical then. Which was radical, radical then. Now. Yes. Yes. It makes me wonder if it's radical in New Zealand or if, if, if New Zealanders are looking at the rest of the world and going, what's wrong with you? So um, <laughs> anyway, let's uh, go to... Mom, give it! Yeah, the Robertson kids. Um, my uh, stay-at-home uh, thing today, things that we're doing at home, I wrote. I read this, I wish I'd wrote, written it, I read this really, really beautiful column in the New York Times by Elizabeth Brunig. Uh, she wrote a lovely piece about cooking with her almost four-year-old daughter. Her issue, and I get this so much, is that she is a perfectionist and she's very demanding of herself. And that means that when she goes in to cook, things have to be exact. And you know four-year-olds, Rebecca, they don't <laughs> do exact. And her, her daughter somehow learned the term sous chef. And her daughter keeps telling her that she is her sous chef. Um, and the, the whole column was about letting go Letting her daughter learn, letting her daughter be free, not, you know, like stifling her daughter with her perfectionism and how hard that is. And it was just absolutely beautiful. But my thing is, look, if you let your kid mess everything up now, in about 10 years, they're going to be making you four-course meals. So just let it happen and, and you, you will be thankful for that. It is so hard to let it happen. My kids have to... <laughs> duct tape me to the chair, especially in the kitchen, because that's my domain. I am the only one in the house that cooks. Yeah. And when they try, they say, okay, you can help, but you can only talk. You cannot move from the seat. <laughs> and, and, and it kills me. But you know, this week, my 14-year-old son taught my 10-year-old daughter how to make cookies. Yay! And I did not get up from the couch. Yay! There you go. It pays off after a while. We're going to uh, head to the interview right now with a slightly uh, different bit of music here. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. A'udhu billahi minash rajim we are uh, talking about Ramadan today, this month in which Muslims around the world fast during the day, eat at night, and as far as I can tell, rarely sleep. Not sure if that's a cultural characteristic of the holiday or just something <laughs> endemic to the Muslim people I know. Uh, one other thing I know, Ramadan is about people and family and coming together. And now we can't come together, but we can still celebrate the commemoration of the angel Gabriel giving the first revelation to Muhammad just in a kind of social distancing way. Today we're talking to Atar Hasibullah, the chair of the mosque Masjid Ibrahim. He's also a lawyer and currently general counsel for Opportunity 180. Atar, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I did notice the crescent moon the other night and thought of you. The moon is a very <laughs> important part of this month. Talk to me about that. 
Well, that's right. So uh, the Islamic calendar is based off the lunar calendar versus the solar calendar. So in effect, what we have is um, every Ramadan, we Muslims that are observant fast for 30 days. We abstain from food and beverage from sunrise to sunset. The challenging part is that that ends up decreasing by about um, by about 10 days per year. And as a result of that, uh, it shifts back. And so it just so happened that we ended up finding ourselves in a situation where you know, we are experiencing um, the first of these months during this sort of pandemic where everything is shut down. Interesting. So the, so what you're saying is that the, the, the Muslim calendar doesn't follow the calendar that we follow, the, the Christian calendar, right? That's correct. Right. It's, uh, you know, it's not, a lunar, uh, it's not a solar calendar. It's a lunar calendar. So um, it, it moves back 10 days right. every year. Jewish calendars are the same way. And I never know when the holidays actually are. Uh, vis-a-vis the Christian calendar. You know, actually, you bring up a fun point because there's these, this joke that we have going on in our community consistently is like, it's always like a lunar war because nobody can actually tell when the crescent's coming in many instances. So you have some schools of thoughts which are like follow science and the other ones that are like, no, look at the naked eye. So oftentimes it ends up falling on a different day each year and it's this ongoing strife within our community. Um, it's a fun little tidbit that we, we try to avoid at all costs if we can. Interesting. But so no, it happens. no council of, of people has, has, has come together to say on this particular month, this is when we know that the crescent moon is going to happen and this is, this is when it's going to start. So there are, there are multiple councils that do that sort of work. The challenge is whether or not they're accepted by anybody. And as Muslims, we don't have a central organization like a central church, uh, like a Catholic church would or uh, our Mormon community would um, throughout, you know, throughout the world. Um, as a result, uh, everybody's sort of uh, in an individual capacity. And so certainly in North America, we follow the guidance of different groups like the Islamic Society of North America, um, Isna, who, you know, we tend to look to for guidance, and they certainly uh, follow more scientific means, but other groups don't don't necessarily follow that uh, that train of thought. And so it becomes interesting because what you also have is if you start the month a day early, oftentimes what ends up happening is you end the month on a different day. And so you'll you'll run into certain communities that might be celebrating Eid, which is our, our celebration or the feast that ends Ramadan mm-hmm. um, on one day, and then you'll have a, another mosque or another community celebrating it on a different day. Interesting. Okay. So let's get to the heart of this. Fasting is from sunup to sundown, as you said. We are now social distancing and we are now working at home. How can you possibly not eat during the day when you are at home? Well, you know, I, I've been joking about this for a little while. This is probably, I, I probably needed Ramadan more than it needed me um, because, <laughs> you know, leading into the leading into the month, um, certainly for many of us that are at home and isolated and, and not in a, you know, in a, in a role that's a mandatory opening or anything else of that sort, um, we've been in situations where we've effectively been eating every few hours and certainly folks are packing on the pounds. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it's actually a physical adjustment, uh, but also a mental adjustment. Generally, when you're busy and you're at work and you've, you you have things to occupy your time, um, it's a little bit uh, – day passes by a little bit quicker. Mm-hmm. And certainly right now, even though you know many of us are still working and working remotely, the days are not passing by with the same speed as they once did. So you constantly find yourself thinking about food, um, but primarily <laughs> liquids because we also you know, – we're not permitted to drink uh, water during the day between sunrise and sunset or any other liquids as well. And so um, that becomes a huge challenge. Now, the beauty of it, though, is that thankfully for those of us in Southern Nevada and our our, uh, Muslim community here in Southern Nevada, 
we fasted just a few years ago and we were fasting in the middle of July and August, right? Mm -hmm. Sun setting at, you know, mm -hmm. 8.30, 8.45 p.m. And, you know, it's 115 degrees out. So we're certainly in a better position now where it's more temperate climate and the fast is a little bit shorter and it'll progressively start to get shorter as we approach the winter. Um, but it is, it is different. Even the concept of breaking our fast is different. How is it different in terms of breaking so, the fast? So traditionally what ends up happening for many um, who are observant, who are, are practicing and, you know, attend one of the, the six mosques here in Southern Nevada um, we, a lot of us often go to the mosque every single night and we break fast as a community with a uh, hundred other people, um, dozens of families that are there. We come together, we share a meal, then we offer evening prayers that go for about an hour, hour and 20 minutes. And then some of us, um, you know, despite obviously the, the ordinances in place, some of us go out and we, you know, we feed the hungry each night as well. Mm. Um, and we believe that's our obligation. And so this year with none of that happening, it sort of becomes an anticlimactic Ramadan where you're, you're sort of... Uh, consuming your food alone or, or via Zoom, um, which doesn't necessarily have the same effect. But mm -hmm. one of the nice things that we've been able to do as a result of this um, is, A, we've been able to, or I should say two of the nice things, A, we've been able to focus on our own faiths and correcting, uh, you know, our own behaviors and improving ourselves individually. But the second thing that we've been able to do, which I think is really, really uh, interesting and may have come at a, a nice time as well, is that we're able to use our social platforms now to talk about Ramadan in a way that's not exclusive, like it might be in a situation where folks are at a mosque. So it's ah. potentially more open to, to non-Muslims to ask questions, to see what's going on in the Muslim community. Um, we were really elated uh, at our mosque in particular, and obviously, you know, some in the community like myself are, are very politically active. Um, but as a result, you know, we were able to, we had Ramadan wishes from both of our U.S. senators, from our Congress folks, for people running for statewide office. And so, mm -hmm. you know, being a kid that grew up here in Las Vegas, I, you know, I remember, you know, 25 years ago, uh, being in grade school or and kids not even knowing what a Muslim was, mm -hmm. right? And fast forward 25 years and, you know, it's Ramadan wishes and people have an insight into our community beyond, you know, what's often viewed as being sort of like a, a secret universe, the, the world's most anonymous 2 billion people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, that, is, that is very much true. Uh, so I, I have questions about, I know that you always uh, share what Ramadan is. You, you've been sharing it on Facebook for a number of years. I should say that I met Atar when I interviewed his mother when, when Masjid Ibrahim was started, because she started it. And that's a rarity for a she to start a mosque. Uh, and uh, and then we I've interviewed him uh, before, uh, since then, and then we've become friends. Uh, so I see you on Facebook, and you are always talking about what you are focusing on that day. Is that just you, or is that something that a lot of people do? Um, you know what? I do it. I've noticed as a result, like lately when I've started talking to people, some other people do it. Most, most or many people, I should say, um, don't necessarily do that yet, but I think there's real value in doing that to try to keep, make sure that your focus is on one thing per day, because if you're able to isolate and really pare it down, concentrate on one thought versus being distracted by the thousands of thoughts that might cross your head on a daily basis or even on an hourly basis, mm -hmm. it certainly makes it easier to focus, but it also gives you an opportunity to reflect in a way that you might otherwise not be able to do in a really meaningful capacity. Um, so, you know, I've noticed a lot of younger American Muslims, certainly there's a generational rift as well. A mm. lot of younger American Muslims have started sort of adopting this model. And a lot of that comes with just what we've 
recognize with society and how to approach issues like mental health and things like that to try to make sure that we're, we're clearing our thoughts so that we're not constantly um, stuck in our thoughts and bombarded distracted. So you mentioned Eid, which is the end of Ramadan. I've been to a few Eid celebrations. Uh, in 30 days, are you going to be able to celebrate with people? <laughs> well, uh, or actually yeah, 25 days. We're on, like five days into it, right? You know, we're, we're just like everybody else in that capacity in terms of the waiting and seeing. Certainly, if, if the restrictions aren't lifted, we won't. Um, we won't be doing that. You know, it, the most important thing is to make sure that our community uh, is healthy and safe. And so if that means missing out on a social gathering, that's what we'll do. Um, if things do open back up, we'll be implementing safety measures. We've already started developing our internal safety protocols within our mosque for how we, we would do a reopening. Mm. Um, certainly that would include practicing um, distance while, while ever we're doing things like praying. Um, which is generally not the case, but we would be doing that uh, as well as constantly sanitizing the building, trying mm-hmm. to make sure people are using PPE and discouraging those who might feel any sort of ailment um, or, you know, who, who have been exposed to certainly not participate. I think the challenge right now uh, that we've seen is that there's really no timeline. And so we got bombarded with requests, you know, is the mosque open, is the mosque open? And these are from some folks who are regular and then a lot of folks who don't regularly attend mm. our mosque, you know, who are looking for faith at an inspiration at a time like this. Right. But the challenge is that it's simply not possible for us to do in a safe capacity right now. And, you know, for all the national rhetoric. So if, if by chance the president ever gets to listen to this, yes, all the mosques <laughs> in Southern Nevada are closed. There are none that are open. So there is no disparate treatment. Um, you know, and unfortunately for us, we're not closed for one day service. We're closed for 30 days. Yeah, and right. these are our most important 30 days. And then, you know, it, it hits us our bottom line, too, because when we're operating in a nonprofit world, generally the most uh, generous time for Muslims to contribute is during Ramadan, mm. when people are ambitious to help the community, ambitious to raise funds and provide those to the community to help those that are needy and underserved. And it's simply not the same uh, it's not the same this year. You know, we've attempted to do so through online means, but we also recognize everybody is struggling. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a lot of members uh, of our, not, you know, a lot of regular attendees at our mosque who, and members of our community who simply don't have the financial resources at this time. They face layoffs as well. We're, we're a very service-driven population. Um, so it's been challenging across the board in that regard as well. Uh, so um, you mentioned delivering food. That that's one of the things you do to vulnerable populations. We have right now a lot of vulnerable populations. Are you still doing that? You know, so what we were doing, and, you know, I'm probably incriminating myself by saying this, like me and a few <laughs> others would go out at night. I would raise more than enough money to be able to cover food for those individuals. We'd go out at night and we'd feed the hungry. And we've, we've been doing that for years. Um, so you, know, you would certainly go it, to the homeless places downtown. Yes, we would actually find them. I mean, yeah, we would find them. We would provide food. And I would do that for 30 days personally. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the thing that we're doing now or recognizing is we still have a need. So actually this weekend what we're doing for 150 uh, families, we're doing a grocery drive at our mosque, a grocery giveaway um, if they come. So, you know, we've a bunch of members of our community have also been volunteering at different sites. Like I volunteered a few times at at three squares food donation sites as well. Um, so f- our food insecure population that we're generally able to take care of throughout the valley, um, that's been a challenge as well this year. But the most important thing is that folks are safe, and certainly we wouldn't want to risk any level of contagion uh, as well. So we're trying to do everything as in as socially distant of a fashion as yeah. possible to whatever that might entail. 
Atar Hasibullah is the chair of Masjid Ibrahim Mosque, which was started by his mother. He's also an attorney for Opportunity 180. Atar, it is uh, 7.20, 7.42, a minute past sundown. Uh, your pizza is probably there. Uh, have a good day. Oh, yeah, I already, I already took, a, I took a bite. <laughs> okay, <so I'm> fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you for being with us, sir. I appreciate you. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks, guys. Well, what do you know? Lockdown is my specialty. Yeah, lockdown is our specialty, Rebecca. Um, we have, uh, there, are, there are a lot of things that I am finding silver linings about. I opened my window today right outside my bedroom and the roses, the pink rose bush was in bloom. And oh my God, that was the most beautiful thing I've seen in a long time. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that as my silver lining. What about you? I've noticed that when I go on walks and when I'm out and about, I'm a lot more aware of what's around me. Um, my silver lining is that I have finally caved into some home improvement. Oh. I was in denial, like I'm going to go back to work any day now, any minute now, and I'm still <laughs> not. So I've started stripping wallpaper from a bedroom, and that is a thankless, joyless task. Mm. But I felt really good doing it yesterday. I got something accomplished. Yeah. That is a, that's and it's once it's because done, I had eight hours. <laughs> oh my god! And are your kids helping you with that? I mean, you know, they're uh, doing the cooking, but it is my daughter's room, and yeah, she was very helpful. It's it's a border, and I made her hold the blow dryer to heat up the border, <laughs> and then help scrape it off. <laughs> okay, cool. Thank you very much. Um, well, that's that was the wrong thing I just hit. Uh, there you go. Another episode of Impact has come and gone. Thanks to Rebecca Colbert, who you just heard, for co-hosting the show tonight. She co-hosts every Tuesday. And to Atar Hasibula for the interview. Impact is a co-production of Nevada Voice, KUNV with CCSD Parents, and No Racism in Schools. The music you are listening to right now is Vampire Weekend's Oxford Comma. And uh, you, ha- you listen to Foster the People's Life on the Nickel. Special thanks to Christian, Bella, Lola, Emery, and Quinn Robertson for sharing some of their fun family dynamic with us. We're going to be back tomorrow at 7 p.m. Happy Ramadan. I'm Carrie Kaufman. Thank you for listening to Impact. <laughs>